This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome, everyone, to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 1037 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing. So be it through, you know, 1037thegame.com, the free mobile app, and all the great podcast gimmicks we got out there. Let's waste a little time and get right down to brass tacks with what the biggest headlines are in the sport of pro wrestling with the three counts. We start things off with the news about MLW. Major League Wrestling has a brand new TV home. They've been kind of jumping around with a lot of different companies, but they are actually going to be on cable TV. Honest to God, it's actually happening after months of rumor and innuendo from Court Bauer. Apparently, MLW announced they'll have a new TV deal with Vice. It's going to be starting on May the 1st on Saturday at 11 a.m. Central Time. That's our time here in the heart of Cajun country. If you love pro wrestling, this would be a perfect day, to, perfect time to start off your weekend Maybe you DVR, you listen to Under the Dome with CD, hosted by yours truly from 11 to 1. And then after that's done, you can do what I'm going to do after the show's done and watch MLW. Mind you, apparently this is going to be a more of a rerun type show or old content that a library and largely 2020 stuff to start off, according to Court Bauer interview with Wrestling Inc. Daily. It's going to be launching March 1st, and then later on the announcement is going to be on 11 a.m. start time starting this Saturday. Now, I think it'll be some stuff just to kind of get people introduced and understand some of the storylines and whatnot, understand what Contra and all that stuff. Because obviously, not everybody's been watching MLW Fusion like, like I have. I've watched a good bit of that. I love what I've seen from them. But Major League Wrestling is making its debut on Vice this Saturday. So again, it's another step towards seven days a week wrestling. It's something I never thought I'd see. You know, growing up, I remember back in the day, we had Monday Night Raw, Monday Night Nitro, Thursday nights would be Thunder and SmackDown. Then eventually we got, you know, WWE Saturday Night. I remember Saturday Night, you know, you had Jacked and Metal, Shotgun Saturday Night, all that stuff. I remember that, that obviously you have Sunday Night Heat. So you had five out of seven days. Now you've got potentially on a non-pay-per-view week, Six out of seven days, you got pro wrestling. You've got Monday Night Raw, NXT, AEW, and obviously we'll kind of get to some of the stuff about AEW, maybe what its future holds, because there's a lot of questions surrounding it that we haven't heard any outright confirmation or denial about what the future holds, because there's some news that pop up, top, popped up earlier today I'll kind of talk about outside of the three count when it comes to all elite wrestling. But don't expect to see stuff like Tom Lawler and Marshall Von Erich on the inaugural show, this will be on this Wednesday's edition of Fusion. But this will be more of, again, stuff from the library. I love the fact they're actually going to get this. Number two on the three count, WWE undergoes massive front office changes. That all started because Mickey James tweeted out a picture on Thursday afternoon. I'm sure everybody's seen it out there in the wrestling world of a black garbage bag with her name on it that she received in the mail from WWE. Basically, it was, all, it was a care package, as she put it. And it was basically some of the stuff that she left, presumably, at the Thunderdome or even the Performance Center to a certain extent. And Stephanie McMahon, Triple H, and John Laurinaitis all apologized on social media for the incident and that the person responsible for the incident has since been fired. Late Thursday night, Wrestling Inc. first reported Mark Carano 
a longtime senior manager of talent relations, was fired for the incident. And there have been several other firings in the wake of this from the talent relations department, not related to the incident with Mickey James. Nicole Zoli, she was the director of talent relations. She's no longer there. She'd been with the company for over 11 years, and it became director of talent relations in 2018. It was originally believed John Cohn was fired, but WWE since changed their mind and rescinded his firing, and now he's back as the referee and senior manager of talent relations working under John Laurinaitis. And one of the other big shakeups is Rudy Charles being released from his office-based duties. He'll be remaining as an official, but also longtime PR director Joe Villa has been let go by the WWE. And full disclosure, back whenever shows ran at the cage done when WWE came to town for Raw or SmackDown, not so much house shows. We'd like to see them in a house, like a, one of the superstars come here to promote the big house show we had at the Cage Dome before COVID hit. But is what it is. But Villa was someone we always kind of were in touch with when they would come to the Cage Dome, one to be able to get the tickets and all that stuff. But more importantly, to be able to arrange interviews to promote the shows coming up at the Cage Dome the day of to get those last minute ticket sales drummed up. I mean, that's how I've met Natalia, Sheamus, and Cesaro. And Carmella, I missed out on meeting Kevin Owens. This is the one guy that we've had in this studio that I missed out on the opportunity of actually meeting. A lot of the other guys, I'm able to kind of swing by and meet them. For instance, we had the Honky Tonk Man here in the studio many years ago. And that was fun. I, that was the second time I'd met the Honky Tonk Man. I'll probably talk about some of my experiences meeting wrestlers a little bit more in detail, probably down the road. Because I think there was another guy that I met. There was somebody I met at All Access Wrestling. That's a st- different story for a different day. And the final bit of news involves Steve Mongo McMichael. He announced his ALS diagnosis last week in an interview with WGN Chicago. The former four horseman has been diagnosed with 36-month ALS, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And he's diagnosed in January, then got a second opinion at Rush Hospital. And he wound up saying in the interview, quote, I'm not going to be out in the public anymore. You're not going to see me out doing appearances. Hell, I can't even sign my name anymore. Everybody's going to be speculating, speculating, where's McMichael? What's wrong with him? And he was basically out up front and said he's been diagnosed with ALS, so he's not going to be a public figure anymore. McMichael, obviously more known, I think, in the larger part of the world as a player for the Chicago Bears in the 80s that won the Super Bowl back in 1985, part of that Super Bowl shuffle team. And he also spent a lot of time in WCW as a color, a color commentator. Listen to me. Kind of butchering it a little bit on a Tuesday. But he also was known for his time as a member of the Four Horsemen. It was a Latter-day Four Horsemen, but still definitely a little bit disappointing to, to see an absolute legend in Steve Mongo McMichael have to, reti- have to kind of step away from being a public figure because of this horrible disease. It sucks. I mean, obviously you see stuff with Steve Gleason wishing nothing but the best and hopefully he can get past that 36 month and he's able to be back on his feet or better yet, you know, he's able to have a longer life. Obviously Steve Gleason is a key point where I'm bringing that up because Steve Gleason has been having that disease for a good while, but he's been able to kind of stay around. So hopefully he can be in that kind of number as well. All right, it's the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Let's get into Impact Wrestling Rebellion, a fantastic pay-per-view impact. I don't normally watch much impact, but this was something I had to see to believe. And it starts off with a fantastic opener. 
TJP versus Josh Alexander versus Ace Austin. Perfect blend of the X Division style. TJP and Austin, more of those high flyers, but also showed off Josh, Al- Josh Alexander's power and technical wrestling throughout. TJP took control early on. Some great high-flying moves. Even tried to quickly put in the octopus hold on Josh, but did not work out. Ace Austin continued to really show why he's going to be one of the top guys in the industry in the next couple of years. He's got a great move set in the style. he had, like The swag he has with some of the moves puts him over the top for me. Fantastic. Ace at one point tees using the car, the ace of a sleeve, if you will. But this threw me off for a second because I'm so used to triple threats being no DQ. I mean, it's implied at this point. But Brian Heber prevents him from using it. And it was like, wait, there's DQs here? What is going on? And they were talking about how it's a foreign option. Like, why is he calling that off? Like, I think that'd be fine if he did that. It is, but I was like, okay, whatever. It took me out of it for a moment, but I still enjoyed the hell out of this match nonetheless. One of the big criticisms for me, and this is just throughout the show, is that the production had like canned Eric Andre esque sound effects throughout, and the ring set was being mic'd up poorly. It felt like it was muffled. Like you were hearing, like, I think Madman Fulton and Ace Austin saying things at ringside. It was like, it was very much muffled. And I couldn't tell exactly all what was being said. But honestly, really solid match outside of some of those things. At one point, they wound up putting together a really cool sequence of events where TJP locked in the ankle lock and then Austin was behind Alexander. Then Josh Alexander put him in the ankle lock. So he basically had a double ankle lock in. That was awesome. And then TJP tried to lock in the hole once again on Alexander, but he didn't tap. Ace hit a double fold on both of them, but that one just getting a two count. Alexander took control a few minutes later with a J driller for two, but TJP broke up the pin, so the match goes on. Ace Austin for a Hurricane Rana, but looked it looked very much sloppy. Alexander locked in the ankle lock. But Fulton interferes yet again because he interfered a little bit later while TJP was trying to put together a high spot. That didn't work. TJP tried to get things going after he put the ankle lock in the grapevine. And TJP hit the Mamba Splash for two. TJP tries to finish off, finish things off, but Fulton interferes yet again. Josh Alexander sends it home with another J-Driller onto Ace Austin and becomes your new X-Division champion in Impact Wrestling. This was a three links of Boudin type match. Hot opener. Big surprise for me. I had him in my, my pick him, but I largely just felt like it was time to kind of see Ace Austin move up in the world and not be a part of the X division. I think we're going to see him be part of a big storyline down the road, maybe at, in terms of contending for the Impact Champion, the Impact Heavyweight Championship. Damn good show here. Now we get to. An eight-man tag, Violent by Design versus James Storm, Chris Saban, Eddie Edwards, and Willie Mack. And full disclosure, Eric Young was ruled out of the contest due to a bad injury he had leading into the pay-per-view. And I was disappointed to see that happen. He wound up tearing his ACL, so they're now a mystery partner story. And they show EY backstage before a hype video saying that the mystery partner isn't a part of the design, but he will make an immediate impact, pun intended, tonight. For those who don't know who's part of Violent by Design and hasn't paid attention to a whole lot of Impact Wrestling storylines, I'll catch you up. Rhino, Cody Diener, who was part of like a gimmick with ODB back in like the late 2000s and 
early 2010s. Joe Doring, a absolute hoss of a man. And Eric, Eric Young's kind of the leader of the group. Big Wyatt family vibes based off of the storylines that's been told here because Cody Deaner was basically brought into the group to be healed. And kind of same with Rhino. Joe Doring has always been around. He's been that kind of enforcer of the group. But Cody Deaner has a lot more edge to himself. And they all come out. Eric Young kind of signals for the mystery partner to come out. And it's Big Cass. Now he's known as W. Morrissey. After all, his real name is Will Morrissey. It was weird. And then I'm like, you know what? It's a step up from his Xbox Live gamer tag, KazXL, C-A-Z-X-L. But it's great to see him. After all he's been through over the last couple of years, he is absolutely etched. Like His abs almost have abs. I absolutely was like blown away by his look. Because if he had that look in WWE, I guarantee you he would have had a really solid run. I think maybe also if he had not been just drinking a lot and being a complete moron sometimes, he probably would still be in WWE and have a really big push coming on his way. But I'm hopeful he can keep things going here because I like what I saw from the man himself that is Big Cass. You can't teach the size. And he that was the big story early on. You know, after Willie Mack took control of the contest, facing off of Cody Dino's clear mismatch, the faces took over, isolated him, but then Morrissey got back into it. He looked like a monster the entire way. Every time he was getting hit, it was largely a no-sell early on. They took over. Faces took over, isolated Diener. Morrissey forced himself back into the contest and was starting to hand out knuckle sandwiches left and right. Chaotic match. And this is something that I've always kind of like been turned off by to a certain extent. It's chaotic to the point where it turns bad. There's there's good chaotic. I think there's always going to be a good time for a crazy match and you know a cluster bleep. But I feel like sometimes when you do these things, especially in eight-man tags or multi-man matches, it feels too forced. And there's one instance where they had a superplex to the outside. It felt a little bit too choreographed for me because everyone just seemingly waited for them to catch them. It was basically everybody was there and you knew what was coming. Like that's the stuff I can't necessarily be all it into. Tower of Doom spots, they're still great, but it's just a slight turnoff. Morrissey and Mac square off towards the end of the match. Mac tries to hit the stunner, but nothing doing. And all of a sudden, Morrissey just absolutely damn near decapitates Mac with a big boot. Just badass looking move. Then W finishes the match off with the East River crossing to secure the win for Violent by Design. Again, fine match, a little too much chaos for me to get into the three links of Boudin range, but it was about two and a half links of Boudin. Good stuff there. Then we get to Matt Cardona, Brian Myers, a grudge match between the former Major Brothers, the former Edgeheads. Definitely a fun match here. Cardona goes for a handshake, but Myers flips him off immediately, and they quickly were just going straight into it. Cardona went for the reboot in about two minutes. Wanted to call it the Broski boot when I wrote down in my notes. I'm like, oh, yeah, we can't really call it that anymore. Then they had an outside spot. This threw me. This is another complaint for me. And again, it's just production issues. Is I mean, it's typical. They had an overexposure moment where basically you had a vertical suplex that wound up landing on the guardrail and great spot. But they had an overhead shot that all of a sudden you just saw a big old flash and they over white balance. I guess it was when the lights hit it and it just couldn't. You know, it, it overexposed everything and it's it it was weird and they never quite fixed it. After that, again, it's an overhead cam. It's probably more of a steady cam versus you know some of the hard cams that you have and some of the cams you'll have 
near ringside. Solid grudge match between these two. Cardona got the reboot in after the third try. And that went going through the ropes, too. That was really nice. And then hit the radio silence to the outside, but landed on his hip, it looked like. And that was not great. Cardona took control of the contest, hit the unpretty for about 2.5. Then Cardona went for the radio silence, but um, Myers ducked it, and Cardona landed awkwardly on his knee. No idea if this was legit or not, at least when it happened live. Cardona later said that he was fine. It was just a little bit of a scare. And Myers won with the roster cut at the end of the match. Three links of booting here. Fine stuff. Finish was sold. was solid and made you wonder the legitimacy of the injury. Just a solid match all the way around. Then we go backstage as a segment with Tony Khan, Tony Schiavone, Jerry Lynn, and Aubrey Edwards. They're hyping up the main event later tonight. Scott Demore shows up and says Brian Hebner will be the ref for the main event match. Khan counters because of the Hebner name and says that you know why not we ha- why don't we have Aubrey Edwards officiate it? They said let's just put two refs in this. And then I'm like, okay, there's going to be some smiles going on now. They've officially set this up, and we're going to get a whole mess in the ring. We'll talk about the match a little bit later. We'll get to the Knockouts Tag Team Championship match. Jordan Grace and Rachel Ellering, Jazz at ringside, taking on Fire and Flava. Really good clashing of styles here. Fire and Flava tried to outquick the stronger team early on. Worked out really well. Ellering, great hot tag sequence after Grace slammed. Kara Hogan, she just took care of business and cleaned house. I like, and Rachel Ellering really turned it around. For me, the match was solid, but at the end of the day, there were still some moments where it felt too familiar. It felt it was very much like a half speed type match. But Hogan and, you know, Tasha Steeles, they crushed it in their spots. Really great synchronization between the two teams at one point in opposite corners. Fire and Flava go for the double suplex, but Grace counters it with their strength. And Ellering wound up getting the win with a sit-out powerbomb. Short, sweet, to the point. Surprised by the title switch. Pace was a little rough. I'm giving it two and a half links of Boudin. Again, it was it was fine. I think it definitely could have gone maybe a little bit longer, but it is what it is. A lot of these matches, for the most part, this was, I think, the second shortest match. Actually, excuse me. This, is the, this was the shortest match on the card, which I was surprised about. And again, it was just the average length of the matches was about, you know, I'd say 10 minutes or so because outside of the main event, everything else was in that 10 to 15 minute range. And some of them felt like it didn't go nearly as long. Like the next match, which was the last man standing contest between Trey Miguel and Sammy Callahan. That's been building for the last several weeks. And this was a damn good last man standing and sometimes these kind of things underwhelm because, again, you have the moments where that thing is just going to plod and carry on, and you just sit there. And I'm like, come on now. like Get me to the next point. And I'm like, what's going on here? I need to know how this thing can get. This was a match where, yes, you had the start and stops. I mean, immediately, Callahan throws Miguel out of the ring. I mean, body slams his ass out of the ring, and it's just nuts. I mean, you know, they immediately start the 10 count. It's like, okay, this was a little weird, but I liked some of the stuff, especially the pacing of the match, and really showed how sadistic and twisted Callahan is. At one point, puts a big old wrench in Trey Miguel's mouth and shows how much bat bleep crazy this cat can get. Then we get to possibly the most brutal part of the show, and something I'd never really seen before. He, all of a sudden, Sammy Callahan, Power slams Trey Miguel on the leg of a table. They kind of do the T 
teasing vertical suplex spot, go back and forth. But all of a sudden, Sammy Callahan throws him on the leg of the table. And like the back's not really supposed to bend that way. It looked absolutely rough. And then a pile driver threw a table off the top rope. The table did not break. At this point, I'm like, Trey's got to be 100% concussed. Callahan hits another one, and it puts him on the stairs. And it's like, okay, what the hell was that all about? Like, I, I get it if you did that and you actually used the stairs the way you're supposed to, and you just basically put them on top of them. But essentially, you just thought, oh, hey, I'm just going to put them underneath it. But there's really, it's pretty really easy to get out of that spot. And Miguel basically is able to get out, I think, at the count of like seven out of the other side of the ring and pops up, hits Callahan with a cutter for the win through a table. So again, and the table the table didn't break initially, then they wound up hitting a cutter for the finish. Three links to Boudin type match, absolutely start to finish just rough. And hopefully we can see more stuff like that. I think that I would love to see more of this storyline go going forward. And then we get to the Impact Wrestling Tag Team Championship match. The Good Brothers, Jim Rohn's favorite tag team, taking on Finn Juice. And Carl and Finley kind of started up. They lock up, and they're jockeying for a position at this point. And it just is a hard-hitting match. Really, again, I love this match from start to finish because they had so many cool spots all the way through. Finn Juice retain after a hard fought, about 10-minute match. It's about a two-and-a-half link of Boudin contest. Juice, and it, you know, did not like the fact that we saw a small package finish, but, you know, it is what it is. It's the element of surprise, and now maybe we'll see these two face off again further down the road. But then we get to the Impact Knockouts Tag Team Championship match, and this is another short contest, 9 minutes, 33 seconds. I believe this is, this is the second shortest match of the night, and I was very much surprised by it. And to Neil Dashwood, Deanna Prazo, this exceeded my expectations because I think Deanna Prazo has been, without a doubt, one of the best in terms of the knockouts in a good while. She's a great performer all the way around, and to Neil Dashwood really showed herself off in a way to be one of those kind of stop stars. I was very much looking forward to seeing how this all was going to go out and go down. And Daniel looked really good, especially with certain spots. She even hit her finish for two. That and that finish always looks brutal, and that kick just crushed it. And Daniel wound up kind of getting back into it, but Diana hit the Fujiwara armbar, and then the Queen's Gambit, which basically is the Gotch neutralizer. Gotch neutralizer. There we go. And that wound up getting the pinfall. And I'll say this. This was a three-and-a-quarter Lincoln Boot anti-match. Really good stuff all the way through. After the match, Deanna Prazo and her stable of Kimberly and Susan, they beat down to Neil a little bit more. The Taylor Wilde comes out, and that's basically how this whole thing goes. So presumably, you'll see Deanna Prazo and Taylor Wilde probably at Slammiversary. And they announced that. The next three pay-per-views they announced ahead of time with Impact Under Siege on May 15th. Presumably that could be a AEW Impact crossover show. At least that's what the name kind of imp- implicates, right? June 12th is going to be Impact Against All Odds. And then you have Slammiversary in July. No promo date. No actual date, but we get a promo. So, And they show Chelsea Green footage. They show Samoa Joe footage. They even show Okada and Naito footage, which made me think, holy crap, 
if they get them on the show, this may be one of the biggest Impact Wrestling events in a long time, and I'm definitely looking forward to talking more about Impact. I'm interested to see how this is going to go. Really good stuff here when I saw that. And again, the promo was great, and that's going to assume that this pay-per-view is going to be like probably late July, because I believe July 14th is that magic date of getting out of the 90-day no-compete in terms of WWE's deal. So July 14th is going to be on a Wednesday. So presumably, if you can pull this off, I think July 18th might be the date. I haven't seen anything official about about this pay-per-view coming up, the actual hard date. It just says July 2021. Even the wiki says just July 2021. So hopefully we'll find out more. And when we do, we'll let you know what's going on with that. Now we get to the main event, title versus title. This is the only reason why I watched this pay-per-view to begin with. Rich Swan, Kenny Omega, and Omega's out with the Good Brothers and Don Callis. Then you see out of ringside for Rich Swan, it's Eddie Edwards and Willie Mack. And I love the fact they had this because it gave this a huge big fight feel. Don Callis did a great you know ring introduction for Kenny Omega in the ring. But what I really liked was Mauro Ranallo. He did a fantastic job and further proved why he's one of the best commentators in the fight game, be it UFC, MMA, you know, boxing. He is the guy that can make any main event go from being probably a three or four Lincoln Pudan match to being a five Lincoln Pudan match, which is exactly what this was, but it wasn't as much, you know, the selling points. It was just the overall match from start to finish, such good stuff here all the way through. Damn strong stuff here. Omega, Swan, back and forth. There was one point where Omega, where Swan was trying to go for his handstand and go into the DDT, it looked like, but he hit his head. I don't know if that was legit or if that was supposed to be part of the angle and basically you have the bigger part of the story be about attacking the neck, but that looked brutal as hell. I liked some of the stuff throughout, like some of the momentum shifting. The way they had this thing slowing down, they slowed it down a good bit because it was more about teasing the one-winged angel every single time. And, you know, at one point, basically Kenny Omega goes into Brock Lesnar mode. He hits the V-triggers like seven times. I think he hit it total in the match probably 13 times. And he hits it. And he keeps connecting every single time. And there's one, the finish. Swan goes for the Phoenix Splash. He's to the top. He's on the second rope, jumps. Omega moves. He hits him with the V trigger and crushes his face in. And then Kenny Omega hits the one winged angel. And in 23 minutes, we have a new Impact World Champion. It's the winner take all. And now he takes all. I cannot wait for AEW on Wednesday because you know he's going to be out there rocking all the belts. And now technically he has like five belts because he's got the Impact, the TNA Championship, the canonically TNA Championship. Then you have the AEW Championship and the AAA Mega Championship. So he's got three. He's got like four titles technically. Now what happens next? I think that's the million dollar question I brought up earlier. Potentially Okada, Naito could be part of an angle. Who's to say? You know the big payoff for this be you know Bound for Glory or All Out? Because I think the end, the end game of this has to be a title match where everything's on the line. New Japan, Impact, AEW, AAA whatever other titles that you can put an angle to where Kenny Omega defends the titles, 
I cannot wait for that. A phenomenal end to what was a really good pay-per-view. I think Impact Wrestling, i got to give them credit, because over the last like four or five years, they've been steadily building and making shows better. Hell, I think the last three years, after you know the whole Hardy thing and whatnot, they were able to take that bad and start to rebuild itself. And they've been telling really good storylines consistently over the last five, six years with the Hardys and the, the whole broken Matt Hardy thing and building that universe. So they're able to do all that. This is going to be a great moment whenever you think about pro wrestling and the way Impact Wrestling is. I can't wait for Slammiversary. The stories that are going to be told there, they're going to lead to another thing. And just the fact that we're starting to see that forbidden door be open just a little bit more and a little bit more, I think I'm all the way into. Now let's get to some questions from the listeners. We got two of them from the from the same person. Drop me a couple questions through some private lines. That's a guy Vince from Parts Unknown with two questions. First one: Should AEW introduce a character in cross promotion with the Mortal Kombat movie, which is now in theaters? I've heard a lot of good things. I'm gonna check that out eventually. Maybe it'd be more of a DVD type watch because I, I just I have to start rewatching some of those Mortal Kombat movies just to get myself ready for how awesome this one's going to be. And apparently they're also talking about The Miz being Johnny Cage, which honestly, I'm amazed that wasn't even already kind of being discussed even before this. But, you know, it is what it is. Damn good stuff here from Vince from Farts Unknown. And I think, honestly, I'd say, yeah, I would do it. If you have the opportunity to do it, and the fact that it's part of HBO Max and AEW's owned by Turner, and we'll talk about Turner in a few minutes, this would be a right way to go about it, in all honesty. Hell, bring back Glacier. Bring back Glacier for a few shows. Why the hell not? Like, honestly, it'd be cool. Hell, put him in dark. Put him in dark elevation. I don't care. Have him have, like, a temporary role for a little bit. That way you can pump up Mortal Kombat. Like, Closer to DVD release even. You can actually use Glacier again. And Glacier's still been doing wrestling like the last couple of years. So why the hell not? I think that'd be a great move just to give him like a little bit more shine. Because I just don't think you can actually go, especially now, in the world of like cinematic wrestling, I think MLW to a certain extent is bringing back that Lucha Underground type vibe. And by the way, I've been starting to watch a little bit more of the old Lucha Underground episodes again and Damn, that show was amazing. But I'm just saying, you have an opportunity to try and at least differentiate yourself and make it somewhat entertaining. But I appreciate the question about that. And he also talks about, this is a two-parter. Was Adnan Verk a mistake? And how great was Pat McAfee? Pat McAfee is an S-tier commentator in the WWE because he is allowed to be himself. He's He's great in the color role. Adnan Verk should not be a play-by-play voice. He should not be on WWE programming anymore. He is horrible at commentary. Last night on Raw, he was not, not knowing the difference between a train and a boat. That's not a great look for a guy that's supposed to be your voice of your flagship program. And you just threw him in there without a life raft. And now it's... I think Corey Graves should be the play-by-play 
you have Byron be the color and have you know Adnan Verg be your third guy. I'm surprised SmackDown didn't have a third guy. It's just Michael Cole and Pat McAfee. That is a damn entertaining duo because McAfee gets excited. He's got that energy. He's got that like youthfulness about him. Adnan is still very much you know not too far removed from his ESPN days where it's largely a neutered product. I mean, hate it or not, that's a, that's a scientific fact when it comes right down to it. But again, I have no complaints about what I saw from the one of the better shows the last couple weeks at SmackDown. SmackDown, he's, SmackDown, they've had a lot better job booking things. Meanwhile, they've had a complete joke of a thing in terms of Adnan Verk. He makes the show worse. I'd probably say on a scale of, you know, like just in terms of commentators, let's be honest here. I think one of the best commentators of, of all time was Mike Tanay. And at play by play, he did a great job in TNA. Like people hate on like 2000s TNA, but they don't realize how good they had it back when it was Mike Tanay. I'd say on a scale of Mike Tanay to probably Josh Matthews and using two TNA guys, because I think Mike Tanay is more of the voice of TNA. Josh Matthews, but Josh Matthews sucked as a play-by-play voice, especially because they kept deepening his voice down to try and make him not sound like the same, like he was still 30 years old. I'm telling you, this was a better idea. And I like that what I saw from, you know, Pat McAfee. You just need to see your boy, Adnan Verk, get the hell out of WWE. This was a mistake from Jump Street. He's not that good of a commentator. I would be throwing back at the Brinks truck, if at all possible, and get Maranello back. Because that would be the better choice for a play-by-play guy. If you can back up the Brinks truck and he's willing to do it, go ahead and get it done. I can't stand Adnan Verk. This is about as bad as General Adnan. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on AEW Dynamite. I think there was some really cool stuff. I mean, you know, the inner circle hyping up the part. I mean, it's all building up towards blood and guts, which is going to be honestly amazing. But I think I want to talk about the main event itself. Darby Allen, Jungle Boy for the TNT Championship. And this is something I think people aren't going to talk about nearly as much. This was a great match, and it really establishes Darby Allen as a fighting champion, as one of your top stars. And this is something that you've established dating back to Fighter Fest two years ago whenever he had that time limit draw with Cody Rhodes, that Cody Rhodes trilogy. I recommend go and check that out again down the road. I mean, especially once AEW gets a more of a streaming service and is able to kind of break away from the BR Live type stuff. Because I think at the end of the day, Darby Allen and Cody Rhodes is a phenomenal rivalry. And it wasn't even like a true rivalry. It was just the better competitor type story. I've talked about it before. Journey of Wrestling, if you ever dealt with that kind of booking thing, they have a feud where it's the just better wrestler. That's exactly what that feud was. And it was really great stuff. I mean, you had the time of withdrawal at Fighter Fest. You had the New Year's Day match. And then obviously you had them for the TNT Championship. And now he's basically defending the title a lot like Cody did, making himself the fighting champion and making it an open challenge. Now that he's moved on from the Team Taz feud. And Jungle Boy has become like one of the most over guys and they had a hard fought contest and Allen wound up getting the win over jungle boy to retain the title right choice to do it. 
But it made me think, who's to say in the next two years that Darby and Jungle Boy aren't eventually feuding for the AW World Championship? I know it seems a bit far-fetched, but let's be honest. I think in the next two to three years, those two are going to be poised to be the top stars, already building them as such, and we're not even two years in, two full years in to shows when they started off their shows in 2019 at Double or Nothing. That was May 25th, 2019. Two years and some change, almost three years. They've already kind of laid the groundwork on Jungle Boy, giving him his own music, has made him a little bit more over. I guarantee you the first show with fans, I want to see Jungle Boy in a match. I want to see him in the opening contest of that card. And I'm not talking about the kickoff or the or the buy-in, whatever you want to call it. Give me Darby Allen, or excuse me, Jungle Boy opening a show. Once he breaks away from the Jurassic Express, I think they're gonna strap the rocket to him, the rocket ship to him, load it up with the fuel, and here we go. I just like Jungle Boy's look, his personality. He's going to be one of those future stars before too long. But I want to kind of delve back towards AEW because there was some news that popped up earlier today. I think it's got everybody questioning what the future holds, and it's about NHL on Turner Sports because the announcement came out today. Turner Sports inking a seven-year deal with the National Hockey League, and it'll be airing three Stanley Cup finals. And the agreement includes that they'll have three Stanley Cups outside of the years when ESPN's going to have it, and Stanley Cup will also appear on ABC through that aspect. So the Stanley Cup will air on TNT, and then it'll be the first time it'll be exclusively on cable ever, which is mind-blowing in and of itself. And the deal's worth $225 million a year. It also includes you know half of the first and second round of the playoffs, conference finals, a lot of like how we see you know, TNT and ESPN divvy that up. The Winter Classics, they'll all be on there, also along with 72 regular season games. Obviously, the schedule isn't set in stone yet, people. I think that's what people are most concerned about. What happens with AEW? What happens with the second show? Because now, hypothetically, you could have like a situation arise, because I, I'm going to go ahead and just pull this off by memory, is that on Monday nights, you don't have... NBA on TNT. So hypothetically, Monday nights would be your night for hockey. You'd make Monday night hockey. Make that a big highlight type of night. I think eventually ESPN would probably be the Wednesday night hockey, which is really what everybody thinks of hockey. Hockey night in Canada. NBC Sports had been running for ever with the Wednesday nights hockey. That's the reason that's a big reason why NXT moved to Tuesday nights. No matter what you want to say, you want to kind of revise this whole story about the Wednesday night wars. Yes, it had probably something to do with it, but at the same time, you know, getting rid of NBC Sports and trying to secure an, a long-term deal with the NHL, they did that for a reason. There was a reason why they did that. So whenever it comes down to it, you know, I think Monday nights could be NHL, and then Tuesday nights you got NBA on TNT. Because obviously those two sports do collide with each other a lot because their seasons start around the same time, I believe. NHL typically starts in regular times. Back when pre-COVID, it was like, I think, late October, early November, and then it goes until like early June. It's going to be the same kind of thing. And you'd say Tuesday nights, NBA on TNT. Wednesday night, I'd say it 
Wednesday nights should be now and forever. I think they're starting to establish that. Because let's say Turner wants to make themselves TNT, and every night they could have different sports. You could have Monday and Tuesday be NBA and NHL. Not in that order. You switch them around, NHL and NBA. Wednesday night you have Dynamite, and then you have one championship. You can have TNT at night be this big, like, verbose thing. Then on Thursday nights, you get NBA on TNT again. Then Friday night, you have the NHL. That's I think I think that's the perfect situation. Obviously, it all but all determines it's all determined by how things kind of go. Now the million dollar question is what happens with a lot of other content. Here's how I, I again worst case scenario, AEW gets bumped to TBS during the fall, which it would be a bad idea. But at the same time, you probably want to get more eyes on the product because ironically. TBS has more things, has more eyes on the product in terms of overall households having TBS versus TNT, which sounds weird as hell, but apparently it's true. I wound up looking up some things online, but I was like, okay. And honestly, you probably are going to get more because people are going to be watching that. and It's just it's extra programming for TBS that honestly any other night would be airing Big Bang Theory reruns or something like that. So I think that would be a great great deal for them. But honestly, give me a TNT deal versus TBS. I'd much rather that, but I think there, there's a way to do it. And who's to say, you know, TBS doesn't have, like, some games. He's got 72 regular season games that are going to be made available for Turner Sports. And Turner Sports could be TNT, True TV, TBS, I think there's only three that I know off top. I still need to remember what True TV is on my cable provider because I've changed my cable provider in the last like year, and I'm still I I'm still getting used to dealing with like changing of the cable numbers. Because, but I'll say this: big benefit is that TNT and USA are still close together, so it's basically like a just a couple clicks away when I'm watch, when I'm having to do the the channel surfing. But I don't normally do that as much, especially now. With DVR, I usually just DVR both shows whenever we had the Wednesday Night Wars. But now I don't have to worry about that. So that's a very, very good thing. But man, I'm definitely surprised that we got the news today about Turner Sports now going to have the NHL serving a 16-year relationship with NBC Sports. That could have a lot to do with AEW's future on TNT or much ado about nothing. I mean, again... Last two weeks, that company's got over a million eyes on the product. If they can keep that thing going, if they can kind of sustain that for a couple months, that's a strong case to have AEW be one of your premier shows and have it be Wednesday night fights, you know, AEW Dynamite, followed by one championship. You have that every single week, I guarantee you, you're going to have one hell of a setup. At least it's just what I'm thinking about in my mind. All right, let's wrap this up with one final look at UFC 261. And I'll kind of run through some of my notes because this was a very quick card, main card especially. Damn good stuff here. And I like the first round of this contest with Jimmy Crute, Anthony Smith, and Anthony Smith dominated the first round in the opening contest. And there were some really solid punches. Crute went down after a leg kick, but it was largely just down on one knee. And then Crute wound up getting a 
so yeah, Crute went down, and he got a takedown like right after. Basically, went down, and his foot was all jacked up after the first round. Ref had to stop the fight. So Anthony Smith wins by TKO. Completely understand why they stopped the fight. Always sucks, though, to see it in that way. Credit to Crute for toughing this one out. Then we get to Chris Weedman versus Uriah Hall. Another leg injury in the contest. And this one was after just one kick. Very much history-making, but the worst kind of history to be made. Because this is the first fight to end without the winner throwing any punch. He went down, and it was about as bad as the Anderson Silva injury that happened seven years ago against Chris Weidman. I think we can say, you know, don't do any leg, as much leg kicks anymore. Conor McGregor is like nodding his head up down right now. And I hope Weidman isn't done after this, but it just feels like there's a possibility. It's about nine months recovery, but it's, it's, it's going to be a long time. But I give credit to Uriah Hall, a hell of a post-fight interview, nothing but class, putting over Wyman, wishing he could have another fight. And hopefully, you know, we if we can run that back, I would love that. But it just feels like it's really tough. It's all about if he can come back. Then we get to Valentina Shevchenko taking on a absolute, just insane type of fight between Jessica Andrade and Valentina Shevchenko for the UFC Women's Flyweight Championship. And Shevchenko just Dominant here all the way through in round one. All about her kind of just taking down Andrade. This was very much, you know, to me, if we're going to go wrestling equivalent, Lesnar Cena. Every time Andrade tried to get something going, take down. It was basically suplex city the entire night. I had Valentino 10-9 in round one. Second round, it's the same thing. A couple more takedowns. She gets, a, gets Andrade in a freaking crucifix position and just starts wailing on her. Buster open. Valentina retains the title and definitely a phenomenal type of fight to kind of start off what everybody was really looking forward to. The triple main event championships on the line. One day they need to do like a, a straight up like mega card with all champions. It'd probably be like five, six hours long, but damn if it wouldn't be entertaining, at least in my mind. Then we get to Another big fight with Zong Wei Li taking on Rose Namajumas. Thug Rose, everybody was behind her. They were absolutely just going crazy the second she came. I mean, they were booing Wei Li, which I didn't like. It was just a bad look for them. And apparently, and I didn't realize this, they had some build-up to the fight with Rose, some of their controversial comments. He owned up to it afterwards. But Rose, Thug Rose obliterated Wei Li with just a head kick in the first round, TKO. And, you know, she basically went, like, Wei Li went down in a heap. Like, it folded up bad. I was like, whoa. Like, that was a, just a brutal kick. Well done. And the fans should be ashamed for booing Zhang Wei Li. Again, they were booing her the entire time. And I don't, I, I it was a bad look all the way around. But Zong really salty in her post-fight. So, yeah, she should have just taken the L and moved on. But she was like, oh, I was still ready to go. No, you weren't. You got knocked the bleep out. And, you know, same kind of thing when you look at the welterweight championship fight. Jorge Masvidal taking on Kamaru Usman. And he had a, Usman had a big hit. Masvidal just ate it, stayed upright. Really big haymakers. And Usman took over a little bit midway through the first round. Huge takedown that had a little bit of stank on it. And Masvidal fought well from underneath. 
had some hard elbows and kind of fought back. The crowd is just absolutely going crazy here. And we get to back to the stand-up game for the final 40 seconds. I think Jorge Masvidal had a strong finish, but the takedown from Usman gave him the slight edge in my scorecard, 10-9. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because Usman knocked Masvidal the bleep out, had him just demolished with the most vicious right hand I've seen in a good while. And he got folded up like a lawn chair. Insane type of knockout. Masvidal had to basically be told he got knocked the bleep out because he did not remember anything that happened there. And it was like another step in the right direction towards, I think in my mind, Usman being the top dog right now today in the UFC. This wasn't a foot stomping contest. This was just a knockdown, drag out fight. These two were going at it and throwing bombs all the way through. So trust me, I am all the way here for it. Cannot wait. See what's next for Usman because he is starting to put himself into that territory of being one of the greatest of all time in the UFC welterweight division. That's saying something. When you think about who else is in that conversation, is that I think we can say, you know, the Diaz brothers are in that kind of ranking, but GSP is still at the top of the list. But Usman is very much climbing up that list in my mind. He's still got to get through a few others, but I think he's definitely putting himself into that top five condition. He's solidifying himself, but I think whenever his career is all said and done, he's going to be second or first best all time amongst the UFC welterweight division. And the fact that he's starting to really establish himself as a box office draw and having a really good main event fight that wasn't boring. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how that is all going to happen going forward. But appreciate you listening to the podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and follow however you do so through your favorite social media gimmicks and your podcast stuff as well because we're available on almost every single podcast platform on the damn planet. And also, make sure you leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you have Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review and we'll mention you in an episode not too far down the road because we appreciate people who listen in. Until next time, enjoy the fights, everybody.